The IRS is gearing up for next year's filing season in part by clearing through the backlog of this year's unprocessed returns. IRS employees assigned to tackle this work have cut the backlog by more than half since the start of the year. As a thank you, the IRS is giving them a one-time bonus of $1,000. We get more from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, is the giving out of these bonuses because they have already done this work or because they want to incentivize them to do the rest of the work? Yes to both. They have already done this work. The IRS surge team employees that have been delegated to do this work. And there's more work ahead. IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddick in an email to staff that we obtained in September, he said that the work in reducing this backlog of largely paper-based tax returns. There's been good progress this year, but more progress lies ahead. If the IRS still is going to meet its year-end goal of getting to a healthy state on this return backlog by the end of the calendar year. So there's still more work that lies ahead here, but of course, these bonuses come up at a time when it was the year end of fiscal 2022. So that's usually a time when agencies are scrounging around, looking under the couch cushions for money that hasn't been obligated. And in this case, this was something that they were able to do is give a thank you to the employees who have been working hard and continue to work hard. And federal receipts are at record levels, so I'm sure there's a million two hanging around the IRS somewhere. And which IRS employees specifically can get these bonuses? So it's unclear exactly just how many employees we're dealing with. The IRS did specify that it is these frontline employees who are working on these surge teams that will be getting these bonuses. And we did reach out to the IRS for some specification on the numbers here. They haven't yet given us a complete picture on that, but we know that at least 1,200 employees were delegated to these search teams back in February to do this kind of work and that they've thrown more employees into those search teams as the year has moved on. And the returns that they are trying to catch up on, these are mostly paper returns that take a lot of handling and fussing. Definitely paper turns are the major source of their work and their, I guess, frustration. It's been several orders of magnitude, more work to deal with those paper returns. Employees have to more or less manually copy down the information on those paper returns. There's not really any kind of scanning or or 21st century technology there, but the online returns are so much easier for them to deal with. Sure. And about these people that are on the surge teams, who exactly are they? Do we know? What Commissioner Reddick has said in the past to Congress is that these are employees who essentially used to work in submission processing or accounts management maybe two or three years ago in their IRS careers, but they've been essentially promoted to another space within the IRS, and now they're being brought back to this previous step in their career, which he has said is, you know, of course, a a tough thing to ask employees to do, that they've moved beyond the grunt work, and then they are back in that kind of frontline work. Another reason why this bonus is a way of saying, hey, we know it's been tough, but This is a small token of our appreciation. It's almost like you learn to fix electric cars and all of a sudden you're back to grinding out the, I don't know, the pistons on gas-powered cars again. Something like that, yeah. (laughs) All right. And this pay per performance, this bonus idea, has this been common at the IRS for other kinds of emergencies or surges? Well, for a little context here, I did hear from Chad Hooper, the executive director of the Professional Managers Association, which does represent IRS managers. And What he had told me is that the pay for performance framework has been rolled out for IRS managers. That amounts to, you know, a couple hundred bucks here, a couple hundred bucks there. But for the 
rank and file employees pay for performance has never been implemented. And what's worse is that with the IRS and its budget cuts and sequestration over the, the years, they have essentially been forced to eliminate voluntary employee recognition programs such as these bonuses, Hooper describes a tough situation for those employees. We couldn't recognize you for your good performance outside of what we were legally mandated to recognize you for or what the union contract provided. So managers are getting a pay bonus that's a few hundred dollars maybe, and that isn't what the pay-for-performance system was striving for, and employees aren't paid for performance at all. You know, the old saying, a patting on the back without a showing of the green doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. And let's get to the progress they've actually made, Jory, on the backlog. How much is left? How are they doing? And do they have an end date here? Roughly half. The IRS started the calendar year with about $5 million tax returns it needed to process. And they've gotten that down to, as of August, $2.3 million. So they are more than halfway done through that effort, but they are still striving to get this done before the end of the calendar year, which is fast approaching. And so this is why these search teams need to stay on the job and still doing this work. In terms of other tools that they've thrown at this, the IRS has had 6,000 employees on mandatory overtime. Reddick has says that's far beyond what the Irish should be doing on this and that they've had 10,000 employees on authorized overtime. And as far as self-help things, the IRS did agree earlier this year to not close its processing campus in Austin, Texas, one of three campuses that specifically handles that paper backlog. And the union, the National Treasury Employees Union, has weighed in on this whole effort too, haven't they? They have, yeah. They have been pushing against this closure for years now. When the IRS was dealing with these unprecedented paper backlogs, they pointed to this as the IRS shooting itself in the foot, basically saying that if you're going to reduce the capacity to handle this paper workload, then the workload's only going to rise from there. And briefly, there was also the issue of correspondence, not tax returns, that went unanswered because it piled up in IRS facilities closed because of COVID. What's going on with all that stuff? Well, the IRS has promised that it's going to deliver a much higher rate of taxpayer service for people answering the phones in this coming filing season. Part of that is that it is going to hire more people to answer those phones. But what the reality on the ground has been is that it's been the IRS essentially shuffling around the same couple of people, moving people off the phones to deal with the backlog, or, you know, it's been a zero-sum game for them. And so that has been the real strain is that there's a finite amount of workforce and it's been spread over quite a number of things. So with all that overtime and few people, some lobster shift work going on, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's been a grind, but there is hopefully maybe some light at the end of the tunnel here with the calendar year. All right. Well, take time to thank an IRS employee for overtime and night work. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology 
at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances 
um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky to you. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So 
So helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.